0: Welcome everyone to Bar Talk, the official podcast of the North Carolina State Bar. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez. We have a very special guest with us today. Many of you may know uh, Rich Leonard. He is a man of many distinctions. He was the youngest U.S. District Court clerk in the country at the ripe old age of 29, served for a long time as a federal bankruptcy judge. Many of us know him uh, for his service there. Uh, he was nominated uh, to serve on the U.S. Court of Appeals. We may talk a little bit about that uh, experience uh, during, the, uh, during the course of this podcast. Um, and of course, today he serves as the dean of Campbell Law School. He's really been a fixture in North Carolina. Rich, so excited to have you join us uh, today, well, Mark, thank you
1: for taking the time. It's a great pleasure to be here to talk with you today.
0: And and what we're really going to be focusing on today is a great book. Um it's a it's a terrific read from Welcome uh, to Windhoek. Uh, a judge's journey. And this really talks um, about, Rich, your life, but in particular, a focus on time in Africa, which I think is something unique and different. And I thought we would dig into. I really enjoyed reading the book over the holidays. It's a good, uh, enjoyable, entertaining read, for, even for busy lawyers. It's a manageable, uh, a manageable task. So I highly recommend it. And, and perhaps people, will, after hearing uh, the highlights, uh, will, will go ahead and, and pick it up. Um, tell us a little bit about your decision. I know You've got a lot of balls in the air, obviously in the, you know, in, in the different things. How did you decide to write the book and what was the process like?
1: Well, I would uh, talk with friends and make speeches about some of the adventures I had in Africa, both working with courts and on my own. And folks would say, you need to write these stories down before you get too old to remember them. Uh, And so uh, I just decided it was time to do that. And COVID had a lot of very funny impacts on a lot of people. But for me, uh, so much of being dean is external. Uh, It's a rare night that I don't have some event or reception or law firm gathering that I'm supposed to drop by, be on a panel, speak at. uh, And that all dried up during COVID. So five o'clock would come and I'd be here at the office, and I had a little more discretionary time than I'd ever had. So uh, I used it to do some writing. That's great. That is great. I, I know you worked with some
0: other legal legends early on, like Bill Friday, uh, Franklin Dupree. Did they you know, did they teach you stuff about writing style? Did that impact, you know, and, and is writing the kind of writing you do as a judge? I imagine that's pretty different than the writing you do in the Uh, book. Of course,
1: I never worked at that level with President Friday where I was actually writing for him. But certainly two years clerking for Frank Dupree uh, was uh, masterful. It was a writing clinic. He was a brilliant author. And I will tell you a story. I gave him my first draft opinion. uh, And he had kept my first paragraph and my last paragraph (laughs) and marked out the middle eight pages. Wow. And at the top, he wrote, this may be your first opinion. It is not mine. <laughs> oh, that's great. So I learned to be succinct fairly that quickly. Is, yeah. uh, write, write cleanly, write neatly, and get to the point.
0: That's great. How was how writing the book different from all the legal writing that I guess most of us do day? Well, it was
1: much more conversational and much more anecdotal. Uh, I tried to write it like I was there talking to you. I was there sitting with you telling the stories, uh, as opposed to the way I wrote as a judge, which was much, much more formal uh, uh, than than this book is.
0: Yeah. One thing I really liked about the uh, book was you're candid about some of your the challenges and disappointments, and I guess you know, for a lot of people looking at your career, you'd say, oh, my God, you know, this this guy has got every success, you know, in the world and, fed, you know, federal judge, clerk, uh, clerk for some, you know, just a great career. But obviously, things didn't always go yeah. well. In and, particular, and I, part I, I thought that, you know, the Fourth Circuit appeals appointment process uh, yeah. was I, an interesting, you know, morass. Tell, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about that experience.
1: Well, um, You know, in uh, the early 1990s, uh, all of a sudden, uh, there were two seats available on the Fourth Circuit, and you see, and Judge Phillips' seat, uh, that were to go to North Carolina. And uh, you just never know how these things are going to break. So uh, I thought, and I was right, President Clinton had said that he would use one of those nominations to diversify the court. Uh, and he did with Judge Jim Beatty out of Winston-Salem, but the second seat was really wide open, Mm. and, you know, I was in my early 40s, pretty dark horse, uh, but I'd had a fairly uh, sophisticated career in the federal courts already as a clerk and a magistrate judge and a bankruptcy judge, Uh, and more importantly, I'd gone to the same law school as the president and first lady. (laughs) Uh, That that doesn't hurt. That that didn't hurt, and uh, although I didn't, I with them. They were a couple of years in front of me. I didn't really know them, but I knew a lot of people who knew them. Uh, so uh, I, there were ways to get to the decision makers in Washington uh, on my behalf. Uh, so I had that. I had a pretty strong academic record. Uh, I graduated top of my class at Carolina and gone to Yale Law and done well and come back and clerk for the uh, the federal chief a district judge for a couple of years. And uh, and I think the lawyers generally approved of me on the bench uh, as a magistrate judge and as a bankruptcy judge. So I had that. And um, because I'd always been inside the federal courts, I hadn't really irritated anybody. Uh, I hadn't run a campaign. I hadn't given money. I hadn't uh, criticized anybody on either side of the aisle, because as a judge, you don't get to do that. so uh, I put my name in the hat. And uh, there are a lot of other prominent people who had their name in the hat, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it worked out. And on uh, December of 95, I think it was, President Clinton sent my name to the Senate as one of the two nominees for the Fourth Circuit. Was the process of putting your name in the hat, is that writing a letter to the president or Lord going Lord through your it. senator? What's, a, I have, what's I've a got part? a briefing book of several hundred pages. Wow. Uh, getting a federal judicial nomination is a sophisticated political campaign with no rules. Uh, mm-hmm. You just have to make it up as you go. sort of based on who the players are at that particular time on both sides of the aisle. So um, because we didn't have a Democratic senator, uh, they really looked to Governor Hunt uh, for a mm-hmm. recommendation coming out in North Carolina. And he immediately turned it over to the legendary Brad Wilson, who was his chief of staff and later went on to head Blue Cross Blue Shield. Uh, And Brad really was the person that vetted us all uh, and finally uh, got Hunt to recommend me uh, as one of the two nominees. Gotcha. No, I talked to hundreds of people. Uh, I mean, it got to the point where I actually had a diagram of of Senator Helms' poker table. (laughs) You know, who sat where lines out from each of those people to who knew who uh, that you could talk to on my behalf. That is interesting. And it is. It's right.
0: It's a process that's so invisible to us or at least most people. Right. You just you hear a name, you know, go before the Senate and that's that's it. I think some people may think, you know, the. The senators from the state may, may do it, but yeah, the the, the actual no, details. A, well, and you know. I'll tell
1: you, there was a point where, uh, I think I wrote about this in the book, but um, there was a point where I got a master's degree in education uh, before law school, and my placement was as a counselor in a little rural elementary school in Cabarrus County, and there was a uh, really smart but troubled seventh grader who came to my office almost every day to chat. And so flash forward, the um, White House calls me and says, you know, you're strong here. Your academic credentials are great. Uh, you have a lot of support from the North Carolina Bar. But we're not hearing much from the Democratic congressman. Uh, and without a Democratic senator, we need to know what they think. Uh, and I thought a minute, and I placed a call uh, to this young woman. And a couple of days later, one of my law clerks came in and said, I just got the strangest message. And I said, what? He said, this woman called, said, tell Mr. Leonard, Stacy called, it's okay with daddy and it's okay with Charlie. And what did that mean? Well, I told my law clerk, well, it means I just got nominated to the Fourth Circuit because (laughs) North Carolina's two senior Democratic congressmen just called the White House and told them I was their choice. Stacy turned out to be Stacy Hefner-Rose. She was the daughter of Bill Hefner and the wife of Charlie Rose, North Carolina's two senior Democratic congressmen. So one phone call got me what I needed there. Yeah, that's and great. I use that story with my law students when I say, just treat everybody decently and fairly, because you just never know how it's going to circle back. It's a great lesson.
0: I do think, and I think for law students and for really all of us as lawyers, the the lessons about persistence and kindness and also that, you know, life can go on even though you may not get everything you want. You didn't end up getting right. the appointment, but you've obviously had
1: a lot of wonderful experiences and other stuff after and that. I think going, you know, uh, you know, following up on what you said, Mark, I mean, I was very candid about my personal life in this book, and, uh, and I did that for a purpose, because I do think you get to this point in a career and all of us make our resumes look as good as they can. And I think students look at mine. And as you said, it looks like, well, this guy never faltered. You know, he went to Carolina on a Moorhead and graduated top of the class and went to Yale Law and clerked for the chief district judge and became a clerk of court and then a magistrate judge and then a bankruptcy judge and then a law school dean. And it just all worked out and it did. <laughs> uh, that's all true, but it wasn't without hitches. I mean, there were terrible times where I, you know, imposter syndrome coming from a rural family where nobody had ever even gone to college and just waking up and looking around like, how am I here? You know, I and you know, getting jobs at a pretty young age and feeling like I just got this too soon. I don't really know enough to have this job uh, and just plowing ahead you know, just uh, working as hard as you can work and uh, be as persistent as you can be and do it as fairly and ethically as you can do it and hope it turns out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great, it's a great lesson. Uh, It's a great lesson for all of us. Um, You know, I, I did. Obviously, the book focuses on Africa. There's there's a lot of colorful stories. I love the phrase "men talk, women work," <laughs> which <Yes. laughs> you know kind of captures some of that uh, that that modality in Africa, which I, I think is interesting. But tell tell our readers, you know, how, let, let's give them a glimpse and, and talk about how you ended up going to Africa in the first place, because that's another. I mean, I will
1: tell you, it's uh, it, you know, your life turns on these things. Um. So I was sitting in my little chambers. I had the courthouse in Wilson when I started as a bankruptcy judge. And I remember I was in an afternoon recess from a trial and this fellow called and said he was from the State Department and he wanted to know if I'd be available to go to Zambia as a consultant. They had just amended their constitution to resemble ours and they were setting up their first administrative structure of their courts. And they wanted, so they'd ask our ambassador to, send an American judge or two to help them and uh of course I said you know I was completely <laughs> perplexed but I said right. of course I'll go where is Zambia uh, and mm-hmm. um, did a little homework and uh, he called back the next day and I said I think you've got the wrong guy I mean I am a tall white blonde southerner <laughs> with a distinctive accent and Zambia is a hundred percent black African nation I just Think you can find somebody who'll be more effective than me? And he said, No. They had been checking around, and the thing that set me apart is that the Zambians really wanted somebody with an intricate knowledge of court operations, uh, and the fact that I'd been, you know, the clerk, a pretty successful clerk of a federal district court for 13 years, uh, made me different from most judges because. Yeah. The last thing they wanted were more lectures on judicial independence and separation of powers. I mean, most of them had LLMs from Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, they didn't need that. They knew all that. They just didn't have very good systems for managing their courts internally. And uh, so, uh, after some phone calls, eight weeks later, I was in Lusaka for what I thought would be one visit. I stayed, I think, for three weeks. Um, But uh, I like the Zambians and they like me. And what they liked about me is that I really got to the nitty gritty. I mean, I went into their file rooms and pulled their case files and documented exactly how they moved or didn't move cases and where the procedural impediments were that were keeping them from getting cases to judgment. And that was a completely new way of looking at uh, cases for them. They were, up to that time, a very passive court, Uh, the case that made the loudest noise got heard. And if your case didn't make noise, it just laid in the registry. Um, And so we would just define out a series of projects uh, that we were gonna work on. And I went back to Zambia for gosh, uh, five or six years, I guess, to I used all my discretionary time as a judge to go to Africa. So I'd go two or three times a year to these discrete projects and um, Including doing uh, some of the first simple automation for them. Uh, and then we sort of got to uh, a, a logical stopping point in Zambia. Uh, the last thing I did was I was the reporter for their National Rules Commission, and we rewrote re- all their civil procedural rules because up till then they'd been using the old like 1898 British Code, which was full of impediments. And so we did that, and that was sort of a logical stop part and stopping stopping point, and I thought that would be it. But then uh, the Chief Justice of Zambia talked to the Chief Judge of Tanzania, and the next thing you know, I'm invited to go to Tanzania. So that's where I spent my next five or six years, uh, doing much the same sort of approach to working with their court system.
0: That's great. <clears throat> I was curious obviously North Carolina has been trying to move to electronic filing. I think I saw the announcement, you know, that the beta testing is finally going to begin here in 2023 in North Carolina. Yeah. Is that something that's happening in Africa? Are they moving to electronic or is that going to they are be
1: a ways but, away? Okay. Boy, it's uh, it's really hard. You know, um, you know I, 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 I worked in Tanzania and I worked in Zambia with trying to do some really rudimentary automation, not much more than just a case listing and, which cases are assigned to which judge, just so they had some record keeping. And, mm-hmm. uh, and they're beginning to keep that going. But, uh, you know, you would always hear we're out of toner, we're out of paper. <laughs> right. uh, they just didn't have uh, having the sophisticated IT people who could keep systems up and running, which are so critical here, was just hard to come by there. And, and one of the things that I realized, because I was going to Africa a lot in the late 90s, when AIDS was just ravaging the place and it was the young elite who were the most vulnerable. And so, so many times I would have worked so hard uh, with very bright young court officers uh, across Africa and, and, and get a message three months later in the, their code for AIDS that he or she died of a brief illness. Mm. Uh, it, so it was very hard to, that's tough, yeah. to be persistent in some of these things.
0: You obviously have developed a, a love of the continent and and the folks there that came across in the book. I, I'd love it. Can you can you summarize? And it's maybe hard to put in words because some of it's the you know the physical majesty and the culture. But t- for for listeners like me that have never been to to Africa, try to capture cap- what is it that's so captivating for you? Keith? Well,
1: it's a beautiful yeah. continent. Uh, it's stunningly beautiful. I think sometimes the maps don't show quite how big it is. I mean, if you You could fit most of the rest of the world into the African continent if you laid it out flat. So there's lots to see and do there. Um, But I just found uh, the people to be absolutely charming and engaging uh, every place I went. Friendly, hospitable, warm, eager for help, eager to advance, uh, intrigued by the US. Uh, It really is, and there's not, I never perceived much hostility to the United States. Uh, we were really looked at as the gold star for how you might do things. Um, so, um, And I think part, part of the reason I, I said this in the book, but I grew up in a clan. I mean, you know, my father was the 12th of 15, my mother the second of four. I lived amongst grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins, and our social life was entirely uh, devolving around that. And that's how Africa works. Uh, who your clan is is much more important than anything else as your identity. So uh, I, that seemed real familiar to me.
0: Yeah, no, that's it's great. Um, any one, I know you've got a number of fun stories in Africa. Any one, one story that maybe you want
1: to share as a teaser? Um, yeah, I could, I, could, I could share a lot. Um, <laughs> I, well, I think going up Kilimanjaro was quite a story. Uh, Something I'd always wanted to do, and uh, my uh, oldest son was with me in Zambia, and we were going to do it, and uh, of course, Senator John Edwards was one of my closest friends. We actually uh, met as co-clerks for Frank Dupree, uh, sharing an office about the size of my current desk, (laughs) Uh, so we got to be great buddies, uh, and I had suggested to him that maybe he wanted to bring Wade over. Uh, and the four of us would go up Kilimanjaro together and uh, I made all the arrangements and I heard a lot about it later because we went the back difficult route, uh, <laughs> because I wanted it to be, uh, not marching up Kilimanjaro with the Japanese and Chinese tourists, but have a little more of a private climb than we did. Um, and, uh, but it just had pitfalls all along the way My uh, you know, my son took a swig out of a porter's jug and immediately trashed his intestinal system. And I was pretty sure we were going to have to go back down. But after 24 hours, he said, no, I'm not. We're going, we're going. So we kept going. Um, John and I at about 17,000 feet at about the same time got this horrible altitude sickness, which is the one thing that will send you off Kilimanjaro. It's, It's not a real technical climb. If you're in reasonable shape, you can walk to the top. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the altitude sickness will just throw you. And uh, I took the medicine that helped me a bit. It didn't help John a bit. Uh, And we were starting for the top. Uh, And that's the hard part. You climb in the dark. You leave at midnight to try to get to the top at dawn. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's cold, snowy. Uh, yeah. And we were uh, headed up, and I thought I'd convince John to stay in the tent because he was in no shape to do it. But he said, when we got ready to go, there he was, uh, all in his cold weather gear, ready to climb. But he was so worn out, he was slowing us down. And about two hours in, I, he and I sat down. And I said, What do you want here? And he said, I want Wade to get to the top. And I said, Well, you got to let me take the boys to the top because at this rate, none of us are going to make it. They're freezing to death. Uh, and he said, okay, so we did that boys and I climb, we got to the top at sunrise. It was spectacular. We started back down and we're about two hours back down. And here comes John uh, <laughs> with his non-English speaking Swahili porter, uh, come trudging up the mountain. He hadn't gone back down at all. He just waited on us to get out of sight, but, um, uh, I can see he's pretty spent. So, um, we worked out a deal where, um, uh, we took his walking stick and I got one end, and the porter got the other and he held on to the middle and we just traversed back up to the top oh. to make sure we all made it. And uh, classic John, he um, he said, you know, you don't have to do this. And I said, well, uh, and those of you who remember her will know, know this and understand it. I said, that's fine. But if you think I'm going to leave you here down this mountain alone and go home and face Elizabeth. You really are hallucinating. Right, right. (laughs) I mean, that's not happening. Yeah. (laughs) We'll go down together or we'll get to the top, but uh, I'm not doing that. So we did. And that was really something that I think all of us, you know, particularly given uh, the tragic loss of Wade about nine months later, uh, I think that was something that really was a highlight for all of us.
0: Yeah, no, that's a wonderful, it's a wonderful story.
1: mentioning John
0: Edwards reminds me of, a, I found very interesting discussion about uh, where he loaned you some money during a time of personal crisis. And you talked about that in the book, and you reported the money, but there were a lot of people that, you know, had questions. And I, I think, uh, I think your, your response was, don't any of you have friends? And I just, that struck me as such a you know, an interesting commentary on the nature of friendship and, and a bond that, you know, people, people couldn't understand. They've assumed there must be some, you know, payback or under the cover, you know, deal with a, with a lawyer. Right,
1: right. Well, it was a great act of friendship and he, he stepped through at a time in my life where I really needed it. Uh, and, uh, but you're right, when it got, um, you know, when I couldn't get uh, cleared by Senator Helms to go to the Fourth Circuit, uh, a vacancy came open in 99 on the district court. And by that time, John was the Senator. And that frankly should have been a slam dunk because normally when you're the choice of the president and the Senator, of the president's party and you don't have any blemishes uh, you go right through, but Helms was having none of that either. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I twisted in the wind again for another year or two and um yeah you know, and, but luckily I had a good day job and I was getting to go to Africa two or three times a year. So it wasn't that hard.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um,
1: Well, I know we're almost
0: out of time. I, you know, our listeners are, are, you know, all types of practitioners in the state bar. I want to know if if you've got any, tips, messages, kind of, you know, life practical tips that you want to end on here in terms of people listening? I
1: I would just Um, say this. Um, I'm really thrilled to be where I am now. I'm finishing my 10th year as dean of this fine law school. Um, and the students who are coming to me now and that we are graduating are truly extraordinary. I know this generation takes some digs from others as, you know, being, uh, too caught up in social media and not working hard enough on their studies, but I don't find that to be true. What I read a lot of applications, and I will tell you, I bet 90% of the applications that come here are from young people, uh, not always young people, older people who want to come to law school, but it's about wanting to enter a profession where they can have an important impact to change society for the better. Uh, And that just makes my coming to work easier. Uh, In contrast, frankly, to some years ago, I think, when law students were uh, probably more money-based, that's not a lot of what this crowd talks about. Uh, They want a good life, uh, but they want to go uh, all across this state and region. A lot of them want to go back to the small hamlets and villages they came from, like mine. And they want to make a difference. so uh, I, I guess I'd say to my lawyer colleagues across the state, don't give up the faith uh, because the crowd coming out is a really great crowd. Uh, and I think they're going to do as proud as a profession. Well, that's great news. And I, and I know our
0: Legal Deserts Committee will be excited to hear that at least some people want to go back to small towns like Welcome uh, and other places, because that is an area where I think we need more. more. I agree. Things, but- well, thank you. thank Thanks for your long service, Rich, to the to the bar, to the judiciary, to the law school. Really appreciate it. Everyone, the book is from Welcome to Windhoek, A Judge's Journey. Terrific read. I highly recommend it. And I love um, talking
1: about it. Yeah. So if bar yeah. associations or anybody's looking for a speaker, book clubs, uh, it's fun to talk about. I'm happy to, to be involved. It's sold really well, and I'm very honored by that.
0: It's terrific. Well, it's a great it's a great read and another uh, terrific contribution uh, uh, to folks at the bar. So thank you, Rich. I appreciate Thanks, you being, right. being with us. This has time. been this day. has been Bar Talk. We look forward to hearing, uh, talking, uh, and having our listeners join us for the next episode. Okay. Thanks.